some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 13, Place of Slaughter. The year is 1898, and an iron-skinned serpent chews its way through a forest of thorns. Its movements are slow but unrelenting. The forest is inhabited by monsters, fearsome beasts of myth and legend, conjured out of the superstitions of the past. And for a time, the path of the serpent is blocked. The snake has many servants, but the monsters are hungry, and a festival of carnage ensues. Soon the trees are decorated with human flesh and blood. One of the servants is both a hunter and a builder, and he has a plan. He raises a tower in the midst of the thorns and waits through the long, dark hours of the night. He waits for death to arrive. On the night of December 28, 1898, a man sat alone atop a rickety platform, staring into the inky darkness of an African forest. His senses were strained to their limits, hoping to catch some hint of movement, some slight sound that could warn him that the killer was close. He was exhausted. He had been here for hours. His only companion the partially eaten carcass of a dead donkey. If he could only rest his eyes for a moment, but he didn't dare. There were two demons prowling the forest of thorns that surrounded him, and he knew that they would return to eat. If he hoped to survive this night, he had to be ready. Then he saw it moving slowly through the darkness. It was one of them. He expected it to feast on the dead animal, but it was looking at him. It let out a growl as it approached and began to circle the platform. He was only 12 feet above the ground. Could it leap that high? If it crashed into the platform, would the fragile construction topple over? The monster roared, and Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson fired his rifle and wondered if this would be the last night of his life. Patterson had arrived in the port of Mombasa, on the coast of modern-day Kenya, almost ten months earlier. A 31-year-old engineer with the British Army, he had been assigned to oversee the permanent construction of a railroad bridge over the Savo River. It was part of the Ugandan Railway that would connect Mombasa with Lake Victoria. The railway project was part imperial strategy and part humanitarian effort. 
the British government hoped that it would help them to more effectively manage the area under their control and help to counter the efforts of the Germans who controlled the region to the south. They also hoped that it would drive an iron stake into the heart of the slave trade by replacing human porters used to carry goods to the coast with a more efficient rail system. The work had begun under the guidance of engineer Ronald O. Preston, who had cleared the route and laid tracks up to the Savo River, and then with the construction of a temporary bridge, pushed beyond it deeper into the African interior. Patterson's job was to oversee the construction of a more permanent bridge across the Savo. After spending a week in Mombasa, Patterson had boarded a special train which carried him 132 miles across the desolate Taru Desert and through the beautiful Nidi woodlands until he reached the Savo River. He arrived at sunset and spent the night in a dilapidated hut near one of the railway encampments. It wasn't until the next morning that he was able to get a good look at the place that would be his home for the next year or more. The region that surrounds the Savo River is a dense forest of short, white, leafless trees that are covered in thorns. The only paths through the foliage were those that had been carved by the railway workers. The men, mostly Indians and Native Africans, lived in a series of camps that stretched eight miles along either side of the river. Patterson would soon learn, as had Preston before him, that the river was said to be cursed. Many of the caravans that had preceded the railroad had learned to avoid the area because men often disappeared there. Even before Patterson got there, Ronald Preston would discover why. He had just overseen the completion of a temporary bridge across the river when the first man disappeared. It didn't take long to find him. His head and feet were untouched, but everything in between had been devoured down to his skeleton. They found the paw prints of lions in the dirt nearby. After they buried him, Preston led his men back to the camp and they began building bomas, walls made of thorny branches around their tents. The next day, they went looking for the lion. They didn't find him, but they did find more human remains. Skeletons. Lots of them. It wasn't long before another man went missing. The workers began to panic, but Preston convinced them to press on, and the work of building the railroad continued. Seventeen men were killed before they were beyond the range of the lion. On his first full day at Savo, Patterson killed a lion that was prowling around the camp. He was a skilled hunter and no doubt thought that he had dispatched the beast that had so terrorized Preston's workers. However, he would soon learn what Preston had already come to appreciate. In the local Akamba language, Savo means place of slaughter. A few days later, two of his men disappeared from their tents in the middle of the night. Having already killed the lion, Patterson thought that they were the victims of foul play. Three weeks later, 
he was woken during the night and told that Ungan Singh, one of his senior workers, was dead. A lion had stuck its head through the opening in his tent and seized him by the head, dragging him out. Terrified workers listened to his screams as the lion killed him. Patterson followed the trail of blood from the tent and into the dense brush. There were pools of blood at various places where the lion had paused to eat. Then he found what was left of Ungan Singh. His head was intact and untouched, except for the puncture wounds where the lion had bitten down when it had dragged him from the tent. His eyes were wide open, and his face was locked in an expression of terror. The rest of his body had been torn to pieces. Looking at the tracks visible on the blood-soaked ground, Patterson realized with horror what had happened. A battle had been fought here over the body. There was more than one lion. Patterson had his men collect the remains and build a cairn of stones over them. The only thing that wasn't placed in the cairn was the head, which he took back to the camp for official identification by the medical officer. That night, he climbed a tree near Singh's tent and waited with his rifle, hoping that the lions would return. Hours later, he heard the roars in the distance. They started to get closer, and Patterson waited, anxious, his hands holding the rifle tight. Then the lions went quiet. A short time later, he heard the roars again, followed by screams, and he realized that the lions had attacked another camp. Eventually, the screams subsided, and once again the night was quiet. The next morning, he learned that another man had been taken. Early that evening, Patterson got some sleep and then walked to the camp where the man had been killed the night before. He was accompanied by a man carrying a lantern and another leading a goat. It was only as they walked that he realized how foolish it was to walk these paths, hemmed in on either side by sharp foliage, with no visibility beyond the glow of the lantern. If the lions found them there, they would die. They made it safely to the camp, where Patterson tied the goat to the base of a tree and then climbed up into its branches to wait. It started to rain, and he shivered through the night, hoping that they would return. Around midnight, he heard screams in the distance. Another man lost. It was at this point that fear overwhelmed the encampments. These were no ordinary lions. They worked as a team and never attacked the same place twice in a row. The Indian workers believed that the lions were possessed by demons, and they gave them names, the ghost and the darkness. Some of the native Africans believed that the lions were possessed by the spirits of chiefs who were angered over the intrusion of outsiders into their land and its desecration by the railroad. Patterson ordered bomas built around the tents and for fires to be left burning through the night. Because of the heat, Patterson liked to sit outside of the tent at night and read by the lantern light, but he found it difficult to concentrate. 
his eyes were continually drawn to the thorny wall that surrounded his tent, and he wondered if they were out there. One morning, he found tracks just outside of his boma. One night, he woke to the sound of something moving around outside. Something was inside the boma and just outside of his tent. The next morning, he found lion tracks circling the tent. Night after night, the attacks continued. The lions would jump over the walls or break through, and men continued to die. Day after day, Patterson visited the bloody aftermath and followed the trail which inevitably led to the river and was lost. Despite all of this, during the day the work on the railroad continued, and at night the fires burned and the men huddled behind their walls and waited for the lions to return. The hospital was located within its own boma enclosure. One night, a hospital attendant heard a noise outside and opened the door to see a lion standing there just staring at him. The lion advanced and the attendant stumbled back, causing him to knock over some medical supplies which startled the lion. It dashed to another camp and breaking through the enclosure, dragged a man from his tent and killed him. Patterson ordered the hospital moved closer to the main camp. He realized that the lions often visited abandoned camps, and he spent the night in one hoping to get a shot at one of them. During the night, he heard screams coming from the new hospital. The next morning, he learned that during the night, one of the lions had broken through the boma surrounding the hospital, and finding a group of men asleep in a tent, dragged one of them out by his ankles. The man struggled, first grabbing hold of a heavy box and then a rope, the lion pulled him free and seized him by the neck and killed him. It then carried him through a weak spot in the boma and was gone. When they found the remains the next day, little was left except the teeth and a silver ring that were sent back to his widow in India. Patterson moved the goods wagon, a boxcar that was used for transporting supplies, into an abandoned enclosure. The lions had been seen several times during the day in the area of that enclosure. He had some cows brought in to serve as bait. After dinner that night, Patterson, in the company of Dr. Brock, the camp's physician, entered the boxcar. They closed the bottom half of the door, but left the top half open. It was then that they realized they couldn't see anything beyond the door. For an hour, all was quiet, and then they heard a twig snap, followed by a thud, as if something heavy had just jumped over the boma. The cattle became restless. Patterson thought that he could see something moving in the darkness, getting closer to them. Out of the darkness, something huge sprang at them. Patterson shouted, the lion, and he and the doctor fired their guns. The lion, startled by the flash, and the magnified sound of the guns being fired from within the boxcar, swerved and missed the entrance to the wagon. Then it was gone. After that, the attack stopped. Months passed, and they began to hear rumors of workers being killed by lions further down the line. The workers relaxed, believing that the danger had passed. 
However, Patterson could not put it out of his mind. He began building a trap to kill the lions if they should ever return. He constructed a cage with two rooms divided by metal bars. One chamber was completely enclosed except for a small opening. The other had a large door that was raised, leaving it open to the outside. The door was rigged so that if one of the lions entered the cage, the door would drop, trapping it there. In the other chamber, on the other side of the metal bars, would be human bait. Once the lion was trapped, they could kill it at their leisure. The cage was covered with a tarp to give it the appearance of a tent and was surrounded by a large boma on all sides except for the door. But time continued to pass, and the lions did not return. Then one night, Patterson again awoke to the sound of screams. In one of the enclosures, some of the workers woke to the sound of a lion burrowing through the boma. The men got sticks and lit them in the fire. They picked up stones and threw them at the lions, but he ignored them. And once through the boma, he grabbed one of the men and dragged him through the fence. He was joined by the other lion, and they sat there and devoured their victim within the sight of the terrified workers. One of the supervisors got a rifle and fired at them. They ignored him and remained where they were until they had finished their meal. Patterson ordered that the remains be left where they were, and the following night waited in a nearby tree with his rifle, but only saw a hyena. The next morning, he learned that the lions had attacked another camp. Just as before, they always seemed to anticipate his plans. They were never where he expected them to be. Every night, he could hear the roaring of the lions, and then they would go quiet, and he would hear the shouts of his men. Beware, brothers, the devil is coming. Every morning, he knew that he would find one of his men dead. Patterson spent his nights perched in trees, hoping to catch sight of the beast. He spent his days following the trails of blood through the forest of thorns. But like phantoms, the lions seemed to appear from nowhere, and once sated, disappear completely. At times, the lions seemed to taunt him. One night, they seized a man at the train station and then dragged his body to within listening distance of Patterson's tent. He could hear them on the other side of the boma, crunching on the bones. The sound haunted him for days. Work on the railroad stopped. Whenever a train pulled into the station, the workers flooded it in an attempt to escape Savo. Those who remained constructed huts on the roofs of buildings or in the upper limbs of trees in an attempt to escape the lion's reach. In desperation, Patterson pleaded with his superiors for help. Soldiers were dispatched from Mombasa and were joined by professional hunters. Patterson was determined to use the trap that he had constructed. Soldiers were placed in the enclosed room and everyone waited long into the night for the lions to appear. Then suddenly, one of them was there, in the open portion of the cage. Patterson screamed for his men to fire, but they hesitated. The lion roared and threw itself against the bars, again and again. The terrified soldiers cowered against the wall. Finally, 
they recovered their senses and began firing into the opposite chamber. When the smoke cleared, the door was open, and the lion was gone. The search for the man-eaters continued, but the lions eluded them all. Eventually, Patterson and his men were once again left to confront the lions alone. Soon after, a Swahili man came running up to him yelling, Lion! Lion! He told him that the lions had killed a donkey near the river and were there eating it. Patterson organized his men and equipped them with anything that could make noise. They formed a line and on Patterson's signal began making a racket to drive the lions in a particular direction. Patterson positioned himself along a path and laid down behind an anthill. Soon a gigantic, maneless male lion appeared on the path. Patterson waited until it was only 15 feet away. He aimed his rifle, and the movement caught the attention of the lion. It stared at him and growled. Patterson pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. The gun had misfired. He thought that he was surely dead, but the noise raised by the workers distracted the lion, and it leapt into the trees. He had a platform built near the carcass of the donkey. Having been cobbled together over a few hours, it consisted of a seat 12 feet high at the top of four narrow poles. He sat there long into the night, waiting for the lions to return. Hours passed, and then he heard the snapping of a twig. It was coming through the brush, and then it was there. Patterson was shocked to see that it ignored the donkey and instead fixed its eyes on him. For two hours, it circled the platform, slowly drawing closer. It moved in and out of the shadows, continually frustrating Patterson's efforts to get a shot until finally he saw it crouched in the undergrowth. He fired and the lion roared. It leapt around before it was lost from sight. Patterson continued to fire, and when he stopped, he heard a groan, and then the sound of the lion drawing a deep breath, and then it was quiet. One of the demons was dead. A few nights later, the other lion appeared outside a hut of a railway inspector and ate one of his goats. The next night, Patterson waited in the hut, his rifle at the ready, peering through a small hole in the wall. Just before daybreak, the lion appeared and dragged off another goat. Patterson and a small party of men followed it, and after tracking it for a quarter of a mile, found it eating the goat. The lion growled and appeared ready to charge at them, but instead disappeared into the forest. Patterson noticed that it had not had time to eat much of the goat, and was convinced that it would return later to finish its meal. He had another platform built a short distance away, and climbing up onto it, waited for the lion to return. Later that night, he saw it emerge from the bushes and pass directly below the platform. He aimed his gun and fired, hitting the lion in the shoulder. The next morning, he followed the blood trail, but again, the creature had vanished. Ten days later, 
Patterson woke to the sound of his men screaming. They were sleeping in a tree, and the lion was below trying to get at them. Patterson knew better than to go out in the pitch dark, so he fired his gun into the air, causing the animal to run off. The next night, he waited in that same tree, hoping that it would return. At around 2 a.m., he saw the lion creeping through the bushes towards him. When it was 20 yards away, he fired, hitting it in the chest. He fired three more times, hitting the animal again and again. When the sun rose, he and his assistant, Mahina, set out to track the bleeding lion. They followed its trail, Patterson carrying his rifle and Mahina carrying a carbine. A quarter of a mile into the jungle, they found the lion. It was laying in the bushes and growled as they approached. Patterson aimed his rifle and fired. The lion roared and leapt at him. Patterson fired again, the impact of the bullet knocking the lion over. It rose and began to advance towards him. He fired again, but the shot had no effect. Patterson held out his hand, expecting his assistant to hand him the carbine. But when Patterson turned and looked, Mahina was gone. He had climbed a tree. Even though one of his shots had broken the lion's leg, Patterson barely managed to scramble into the tree before the lion caught up to him. Before it could limp back into the forest, Patterson grabbed the carbine from Mahina and fired. The shot hit the lion, and it collapsed. The second demon was dead. The railroad reached its ultimate destination of Kasumu on the eastern shore of Lake Victoria in 1901. Its completion was a huge achievement, and it would ultimately become the economic backbone of both Kenya and Uganda. But it came at a steep price. 2,500 men, mostly Indian, lost their lives building it. According to Patterson, the Savo Lions claimed 135 of those lives. John Henry Patterson went on to have a long and distinguished military career. In World War I, he commanded the Jewish Legion, the first Jewish military force in modern times, and he is considered the godfather of the Israeli Defense Forces. His son Bryce Patterson would later work as a paleontologist at the Field Museum in Chicago, which is where the Savile Lions can today be seen on display. In 1898, a great metal serpent chewed its way through a forest of thorns, and monsters raged and wreaked havoc in an orgy of violence. But ultimately, the serpent's bite was true, and the monsters fell. Myth and legend, superstition and fear, were transmuted into mere flesh and blood and bone. And the great iron snake continued on its way. But those who were there to witness its passage learned a terrible truth. That progress carries a price, and it is one that sometimes must be paid with fear and pain and death. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Eric Stair at Charleston Sound Studio. If you would like to support the show, please rate and review Pleasing Terrors on iTunes. 
your review will make it easier for others to find us. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, or for information on upcoming episodes, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at pleasingterrors.com. Thank you for listening.